All right. Welcome back, everybody. My name is Ryan Miner. You're listening to a Minor Detail Radio, and you can find us on blogtalkradio.com slash a minor detail. The show is also broadcasted live tonight, as always, at 9 o'clock every Sunday evening. Well, except last Sunday evening and Sunday evening before that. Uh, last Sunday was Easter, and then the Sunday before that, uh, I don't know what happened. But wedding planning is coming along. We have two weeks until the big day. Well, actually, 13 days, and uh, it's, it's, we're just counting down. So everything is planned. We're just waiting. <laughs> we're just waiting for people to show up. And if that doesn't happen, well, as my grandmother says, if you don't, if you don't come, then you don't have to leave. So, but I have a special guest tonight, and we're sticking to the sticking to the the theme of candidates, since there's a big primary coming up in the state of Maryland on June 26th. Uh, we're, I, I've been been doing my best to interview as many candidates as possible, and if I haven't gotten to you yet, I promise I will get to you. Um, it's just a matter of time, and after my, after our wedding, I'll, I'll have more time to, to dedicate to a minor detail radio and the blog. People have been getting on my case to say I haven't been keeping up, and it's true. But uh, as I'm getting the uh, the stink eye from my wife to be, uh, <laughs> she said send them her way. But nonetheless, um, I have been doing uh, a Sunday night show. Uh, we're talking about the the candidates running for this big primary and there's so many of them and, you know, covering all of Maryland politics. Um, I have my plate full, but nonetheless, I have um, a district 18 candidate, Helga Loost, and she's joining me tonight. So welcome Helga. How are you tonight? Hi Ryan. Thank you. I'm doing really well. And thank you so much for having me on and for the great public service you do by having this show. Oh, thank you. Well, I appreciate hearing that. And, so as as we typically do, the format of tonight's show, well, we're going to talk about your background, how you got started in politics, uh, a little bit about um, yourself personally, and then we'll go into your race in District 18, and we're going to go into some policy issues. And usually it takes about an hour. Sometimes we go over, but that's okay. It's internet radio, and we have all the time in the world. So – Let's just start out. You are running for District 18, and I've had some other District 18 candidates. I've had um, on the show, that is, had Dana Beyer, I've had Leslie Milano and Myla Johns. They have come on and have talked about the race. But in case anybody throughout the state of Maryland is unaware of where District 18 is in Maryland, talk about the geographical boundaries of your district. Sure. So uh, it's part of Bethesda, part of um, Chevy Chase, and then uh, Kensington, Garrett Park, Wheaton, and part of Rockville and Silver Spring. Okay. So it's a big district. and It is a big district, yes. Yeah. So diverse. You've also, it is quite diverse. And it, being in the heart of Montgomery County, um, it's yeah, that's a great word. It, it's diverse. I'm sure that the, the population there is a mixture of America's melting pot, and it reflects the the great diversity that we, we call the United States of America. So you live, what, on the outskirts of Rockville, is that correct? 
Yeah, I live in this unique space of about a mile that touches, I mean, I can literally go for a one-mile run and be part of the time in Rockville, Silver Spring, Garrett Park, uh, Kensington, and I, and yeah, I think that's about it. <laughs> Maybe North Bethesda, too. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's uh, an interesting uh, area where, where all those um, uh, spaces come together. And you're in a crowded primary, Helga. You have eight candidates in total running for three seats that are up for grabs this, this term. And it, the seats are, of course, we have an election for state seats every four years. And there is an incumbent running in your district. And there are two non-incumbent, or rather, there are two seats that are technically considered to be open, but they're three seats altogether. And um, my... To name the cast now, I, I don't want to screw it up. I, I can name all the candidates, but you're the focus of the t- of tonight's show. But there's one incumbent running in your district, that is uh, Alcar, and but for that matter, but but rather the the rest of the seats are now open, and everyone's competing for these three seats. And so far, it's been quite a spirited primary, and we're going to talk about that later in the show. But first, I want to learn a little bit about your background, how you got started, where you grew up, a little bit about your family, how you were influenced to jump into public service and your career thus far, and how that has driven you to decide to put your name on a ballot uh, for a Maryland state office. So my my first question is, talk to the audience about your background, where it was or was it that you grew up? I want to hear a little bit of information about your family life. This is what separates my a minor detail from other shows is that they go right into policy, but I really try to learn as much as I can about the candidate themselves and extrapolate the personal side because oftentimes we forget in these races that there there's a person behind the candidate and it's not just policy, policy, policy. So Let's let's open up a little bit tonight, if you will, and uh, we'll start from the very beginning. Absolutely. So I grew up in Sparta, New Jersey, uh, northwestern part of the state of New Jersey, uh, until I went away to college and came down here, and I've been here since. But um, I am one of three girls. Uh, my parents were both immigrants uh, from Europe, um, and uh um, I, I, with my sisters, were the first generation to be college educated. Um, my father was an avionics engineer for Cessna, and uh, he was quite the inventor. So he, I think, uh, largely created an interest with the three of us, the three girls, um, to really be imaginative, imaginative, creative, um, to have a love for the arts. Uh, my mother also had a heavy influence on music. Um, and we had a, you know, a really nice, uh, quiet life in New Jersey. This was a pretty rural area of New Jersey. Um, but it's also where I had my start in politics, uh, just six weeks after my 18th birthday was the first election I could vote in. Um, I realized that, um, there was some interest in my neighbors, uh, that I should run for county committee. And I said, okay, uh, it's really re- late in the race, <laughs> late in the game, but I'll run as a write-in and just see what happens. And it tur- to my surprise, <laughs> it 
it turned out I won, um, and I was reelected twice after. Uh, but it really uh, was a, a fantastic um, start starting place to really learn the ins and outs of um, local politics. And really, to, uh, I was very fortunate to have some strong mentors who had been uh, longtime policymakers at the local level who took me in under their wings and really uh, kind of coached me through what to really focus on, um, how to be most effective, and, and that kind of thing. So um, I actually resigned from my seat when I realized that I was going to stay down in, in uh, the D.C. area for school and life uh, after, and I've been here since. So I, I've had a little hiatus <laughs> of, from politics, but not from uh, civic service and, and really um, – uh, being involved in community work. So I've studied New Jersey politics, and I, I got to tell you, there's there's no better place to learn the rough and tumble of the nature, the true nature of politics, than New Jersey. And it's it's there's some unbelievable political stories that have been born out of that state, um, as well as the state of Maryland. I grew up my entire, pretty much my entire life, has spent within the geographical boundaries of Maryland, aside from. Um, a, a brief uh, college adventure in the city of Pittsburgh where I really got to understand how politics are played at the city level. It's a, you know, a big, small city for me uh, growing up as a, in, in Western Maryland in Hagerstown, going to a, you know, what I perceived as a big city and learning how their politics are played. I always, it's always fascinating, fascinate me how politics are done in different States and so I'm sure when you first ran as a write in, nonetheless, a write in for a, com- a county committee woman, is that would, would that be the same as a, let's say, a county commissioner or a county councilman here in Montgomery County? No. I mean, this was 1986, so I can tell you just from uh, my experience of running at the state level here in Maryland, it's such a different ballgame. Back in 1986, when I ran as a write-in candidate, I literally was sitting on the living room floor with my sister <laughs> with markers and poster board, and that's um, how we were you know, working on, on our adver- advertising and raising name recognition. Um, I think the reason why I won as a write-in is because I called every single person on the, um, on the voter list and had a conversation and really connected with people. And uh, people continued to stay connected with me, and that led to uh, being reelected twice. But um, it's, it's a really different uh, game now. I, you know, quite frankly, one of the things that kind of surprised me in getting into this race now is just how uh, dependent a successful candidacy is on money. Um, You know, you sit down with the interest groups and they may love your questionnaire answers and and your policy positions and they think you're really qualified and very experienced, but when they ask you how much money you have in your campaign bank account, unless you, you know, unless you've gravitated towards the fifty to hundred thousand dollar range, um, they don't see you as viable. And I think that's really unfortunate. I think um, at the end of the day, you know, uh, we need people from all uh, all across the spectrum representing the people of this district. Uh, not just Chevy Chase or, you know, people that have means to self-fund their campaigns, but, you know, people that uh, that do really have a strong passion for 
the greater community good and have the experience to uh, to represent the district well. Yeah, money in politics is an issue that plagues our entire system, not just in local races, but rather all the way up to the United, United States Supreme Court with Citizens United. So I, I hear you. It's tough. I mean, you jump into a race and people consider you viable or non-viable uh, based upon how much money that you can either self-fund or raise. And unfortunately, that's just the the modern day realities of running a campaign. And maybe at some point in the future in Maryland politics, as they did, as, as Montgomery County has passed with the public financing, maybe that will parlay over into the statewide races. And I know that many of the candidates are in support of the public financing, but I wanted, I wanted to backtrack a bit. You mentioned that you are a first generation American and you said your parents are from Europe. Just curious, what country are they did they originate from? From Germany. Okay. Okay. Um, my, um, when I was in high school, I spent some time over in Germany and in Bonn. I, I did, I studied German in college and in high school and, uh, met many of the many German families and spent about a month and a half there in total and really enjoyed my time over there. So that's, and it's, it must be approaching, um, politics as the the daughter of an uh, of a german immigrant i'm sure it brings out a, a much different perspective that uh, you know my m- most of my family um i'm, I'm not a, a direct descendant of um well, i should say i'm you know my immediate family they did not come into america my family's been here for many many years um hundreds of years in fact i think Several members of my family fought in the Civil War, and we could go into that history. But um, I'm sure that gives you a unique perspective, having immigrant parents and uh, you know settling in New Jersey. And it sounds like the the, the real American story there. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, both of my parents. They came. They didn't come over together. They. Uh, my mother came over with her sister. My dad came over with his brother, and uh, two great aunts decided to play matchmaker, and it worked with with two of them. <laughs> so my mom and my dad met uh, that way, and uh, um, you know they they didn't have they came over primarily because um, it was after the war, and they were they wanted to get out of Germany as uh, as quickly as they could, and um, and find a better, build a better life. And the way my sisters and I were always raised was um, to, you know, to have a real appreciation for different cultures, different beliefs. And, um, and we grew up bilingual. Um, we had all different kinds of music in the house. And uh, it was, I think, a very, very good experience as a young person, especially in a very rural part of the state of New Jersey, um, but to have that kind of uh, cultural influence through my younger years. Yeah. So let's fast forward to where you are today. Let's talk about your your career path and uh, what you've been doing for the you know the last thirty years. Uh, from the from the beginning, what what was your career path? What career did you choose? And tell us where you what you're doing today. 
Sure. So I started off, um, I came, came to this area of the country uh, to go to school, um, studied marketing, and then uh, got my master's in international business and management. Um, I was at the time, uh, through graduate school, a television news producer, and I had a pretty profound life experience. Uh, I fell victim to a random attempted murder in southern Florida. Uh, I was at the time on vacation with my mother, and um, at at the time that this occurred, there were a lot of tourist-directed crimes. Um, There were actually travel advisories internationally uh, to not go to Florida. But I was a news producer, and I actually did a piece on uh, tourist safety and uh, what to do if visiting Florida just before we went on our trip. And since we had the plans made and the trip was all mapped out, um, we decided to go anyway. So we did have a great four days, but at the conclusion of that, our rental car was pushed off the road, and I was nearly beaten to death in front of my mother. Um, so that was absolutely a life-changing experience. It shook me to my core, um, and I, you know, had very—I was three millimeters away from being quadriplegic. I lost the feeling in the left side of my face, which I never regained. Um, I was bitten, which actually became a forensic files episode. Um, because my case was one of the first to be uh, tried with dental pathology as part of the forensic evidence to um, identify the perpetrator. Um, I I bring that up because it was very pivotal, not just for me as a person, but it, it sparked a deep advocacy in me immediately after as soon as i was well enough to to advocate i started talking to the car rental agencies because they all had bumper stickers and now they're actually starting to pop up again but for a long time they weren't and part of that was because i advocated very fiercely (laughs) to have them removed Um, would-be perpetrators would drive around airports and look for cars with uh, bumper stickers that identified as a uh, rental car, Mm. and they would bank on um, tourists being inside that car. And the reason why they were targeting tourists is because they were also hoping that by, um, by stealing from or targeting a tourist, there would never be the possibility that that person would come back for a prosecution. And um, in my case, they guessed wrong because I did go back. Um, I not only testified against one of the two per- perpetrators who was sentenced to life for three felony counts, um, but his sentence was vacated on technicality seven years later, and I had to go through it all again. Wow. So I've seen firsthand sort of the, um, you know, there are so many things when you fall victim to violence that no one ever tells you. And that has been part of my education and advocacy work is to really help people understand what their rights are as victims, what the process is like, what the, what their options are. Um, and, and to understand that there are some things that you have no control over, uh, even though you were the one that were, was violated, um, you may have no control over it. So um, 
I started uh, after this incident where the sentence was vacated on the technicality and, by the way, the perpetrator was resentenced to life in prison um, at that hearing. And uh, I decided that I was going to take the leap away from doing communications work um, in PR firms and uh, news media and really focus on doing victim advocacy. So I started a national nonprofit organization called Witness Justice that I uh, ran for 14 years as the president and CEO and uh, held a lot of briefings on Capitol Hill and worked fiercely to you know, really try to um, educate people on the nature and impact of trauma you know, originally, my focus was just on crime victims because that was the perspective with which I was coming to the table and and what I understood best. And the more I started to really dig in and research and talk to experts and learn about the nature and impact of trauma, I realized that it's not just violence. It's abuse. It's neglect. It's poverty. It's it's war, uh, disaster. Um, trauma survivors from all of those experience exist in just about every, uh, every family in this country. And the common denominator or what, you know, the, the way that people respond to trauma is often very similar, even though the, the experiences may be very different. So yeah. I've been doing a lot of um, work around, really around, um, preventing violence, because I think, of course, that's like the ultimate goal is preventing violence, bullying, and other traumatic experiences, especially with children uh, during their developmental years. And then to, you know, to do whatever I can to, to shore up the gaps in our publicly funded systems, especially um, where survivors aren't having their needs met or they're experiencing a secondary trauma because of the way our system works or doesn't right. work. Well, I'm so. sure that was a, a definitely an indelible, pivotal moment. And I'm so sorry that you had to go through that, but from a, a horribly Un, unfathomable experience like that, uh, you, you have seemingly turned that into a, a positive to help other victims like yourself who experienced um, just absolutely horrific. Uh, you know, just, I, I can't even imagine. And as, a, as a, you know, I haven't experienced anything close to that. Um, you know, we've all had un, untroubling uh, situations occur in our lives, but. Um, to to survive just that uh, I, I well you know and that that speaks a lot to the your, your character to your resolve to, to 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 move on from that and then turn that uh, negative experience that just absolutely horrible experience into something I would consider to be um, positive and life changing for many other people to advocate for them and today you are. Now you're the mom of two twins, and I'm looking at a photograph of them on uh, on on your website here, and they're they're teenagers. How? Are, let me guess, fourteen, fifteen? Fourteen. You got it. Okay. Yeah. What an age. Eighth uh, we grade. Have our, yeah, Boy we, and a girl. So I have you know the yin and yang. <laughs> it's like really I I love being the mom of twins. Um, uh, just 
you know, they each are so different, um, but they're so connected and uh, so supportive of each other. And I think it's it's such a gift to be a mom and such a gift to be the mother of twins to see that special connection. Yeah. I And if they're in eighth grade, that transition into high school, we're, we're currently experiencing that in our own home. And our son, Josh, he is 14 and... He is getting ready to uh, transition into high school next year to Wooten High School. So we're very excited, um, a little nervous, not for, not for him. I think more so for us. That's, that's, <laughs> so we're Isn't it always now. that way? Like the parents are the ones that are kind of freaking out about right. their kids reaching another milestone, and the kids just kind of go through it, and they may hit a bump along the way, but, you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's an an interesting process for sure. Yeah, it's, that's a, that's a great word to describe it. Interesting, but we are prepared and we are already planning, uh, for the inevitable, which is college. And we are already looking at various options. We have a fifth grader and we're not quite there yet, but, um, in our home education is paramount. It is the, you know, it's first and last on our minds every day when we wake up and we are blessed to live in Montgomery County where they are afforded the opportunity to go to some of our country's very best public schools. And as a state delegate, you're going to be working, um, especially in education uh, and, and in policy. So uh, we'll get into that in a bit. But here we are today. Um, you have signed up to now become a candidate for um, Maryland's 18th. Uh, legislative district and when you first jumped in uh, the race it was last year is that correct around was it November or December Uh, it actually was the end of October the same weekend as the Marine Corps Marathon because I ran it and I thought these are two big milestones in one (laughs) one weekend (laughs) becoming a candidate and I I should say I should tell the audience that your website does say that you are a, a distance runner and I don't envy you. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm more <laughs> so of a weight. I, I, I'm a weightlifter, but um, I, I run short marathons and five uh, Ks, and I'll stick to that. I have not, I have never yet to this day run a full marathon, and that's that's on my bucket list. I'm definitely need to do it just for the experience. And some people have, and I just haven't gotten there yet. And one of these days, I, I promise I will. So. That's, well, uh, Montgomery well. County Roadrunners, uh, they are, it's just the best club around. The running community here is fantastic and very supportive. And I, I can't speak highly enough of, uh, of the group and the training programs and, and all of that. But um, I was just out with a bunch of people this morning running the Cherry Blossom 10-miler. It was a, a perfect day, but, you know, pretty cold. Yeah, <laughs> but, it was cold. Uh, you know, it's good. It's good to have that space to breathe and uh, just kind of keep your pace and keep moving, right? Yeah, I I can imagine how therapeutic it is. When I'm in the gym, it's my time. Or when I put on my headphones and uh, listen to to some music, it's I you know I tune out and all the stresses of my day just disappear. And it's just my time. And I know people who are long distance runners like yourself, who tell me that they experience an immense high from uh, the endorphins, the the release of the endorphins once they're out. And 
um, you know, that's that's something that uh, I never got the same satisfaction from 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 running like many other people do. But I will tell you that I've I've I have enjoyed my time running down in on on Great Falls on the CNO Canal. Um, I typically do a couple miles at a time, and we we were lucky in that we live in an area that we can run alongside the Potomac. And I'm sure for a long distance runner like yourself, that's you know that's second nature. But for me, you know, I'm like at mile five, I'm like, oh my gosh, can, am I done yet? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was probably so. that way this morning at mile five. <laughs> yeah, so but, I, you know, it's it's. Uh, I, I think it's a combination of things. One, it's getting you out into nature, right? So you feel yeah. the sunshine, you hear the birds, you know, you stretch uh, along the tree, and you know, you use the tree to steady yourself while you're just stretching. Um, it's that connection with nature. And then I always have what I call my my pacing device, which is my, my earbuds and my music. Um, <laughs> you know, and having that also, that's like added soul food. And, yeah. um, you know, that plus the endorphins and doing something good for your body. And for me, you know, I was three millimeters away from being quadriplegic. I never mm. ran a marathon before my injury. Uh, and after I started getting my health back and I felt, you know, I, I started feeling like my body was working with me again. Um, I thought I'm going to try, I'm going to just try and do a marathon. And, um, and then, you know, I just didn't stop. I I've done 15 so far. Yeah. So wow, that's... it's a gift though. You know, I, that's the way I look at it. I was given a second chance at life um, and so everything that I, I do, I try to make it meaningful um, for, you know, I appreciate my health and my body uh, and what I, I am able to do. Um, and the same, you know, same is true for what I do with my kids as a mom and then, you know, what I do through my work and advocacy as well. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about your entrance into the race. Uh, Helga, you've been in the news recently, and you have talked about um, a story in which you had met one-on-one with um, State Delegate Jeff Wildstricker, and you uh, you met him at a coffee shop back, I believe, in December, and you had a discussion about the race and about your entrance into the race. And during that time, um, Jeff Wildstricker, who is now running for state Senate, and the reason why he's running for state Senate in District 18 is because Rich Maddalena, who is the current state senator, is running for governor of Maryland. And you have um, you've talked about this um, not only with, my, with, with myself, but with other news outlets as well. Um, you had said that um, – Delegate Waldstricker asked you to jump out of the race for delegate and instead run for state Senate um, with the assumption that it would ultimately help him succeed. And I want I was hoping that you could walk the audience through that narrative and explain to um, our listeners what this what this story is all about. Yeah, I mean, um, he he did, as you said, uh, he did ask me to step out of the delegate race and uh, jump into the Senate race to do him a favor. That was his exact um, wording was to do to you, you could do me a favor. 
And, um, uh, you know, I, I told him no, and I actually uh, stayed quiet. I, I found the whole thing quite patronizing and, um, and condescending uh, or disrespectful. Um, but I let it go until I saw a couple of weeks later that, um, and this is in uh, Seventh State in the blog, um, there was a piece that said that he asked Dana Beyer to downslate for her, for his then only opponent to leave the Senate race and run as a delegate, and then he would slate with her, which she also rejected. And to me, um, learning about that felt very misogynistic. Um, a man asking now two women to do as he said, and you know we should do him favors and throwing his um, power out there um, in a way that uh, you know didn't sit right with me. And so um, you know, so I, I did speak up, and uh, um, then you know a few more things happened. <laughs> Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I want to stay focused on the issues. Um, I want people to understand that um, even though they may have learned about me through this experience with Jeff Waldstreicher and his lying about me on the statement, uh, on, the, um, uh, on the record, um, that's, that isn't, you know, that doesn't define me, and it doesn't define my policy positions, and I really want to stay focused on, on that. I think um, that's really what voters are going to care about. Although, I will say that in, you know, in this particular point in history, character matters a lot to people. As I go out door knocking and I talk with people, I think um, it's crystal clear that character really matters. And for someone to lie on the record, I don't think that bodes very well. You said that in in saying that Delegate Waldstricker lied, I assume you're referring to the Bethesda Beat magazine in which he says these claims are false, defamatory, and born of actual malice. And he went on to say further that when they go low, I go high, uh, standing up for our community's progressive values, leading the fight for the $15 minimum wage – Investing in our schools and resisting the Trump administration in every turn. I, yeah, that was in response to um, the conversation that you had with him in which you claimed that he asked you to jump out of the race. Um, and, you know, at any time during that conversation, did you get the sense that Delegate Waldstricker at all, at any part, was, was making light of the situation or simply joking? Um, are you uh, – I, I – or any any other kind of sentiment that he may have imparted to you was it hey jump out of this race to help me or do you, or was it perhaps a, a a joking demeanor at all? You know, there's nothing funny about um, about that, and he and I weren't laughing, and. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's not that kind of a statement. I'm running. It, I'm a single mom, and. Uh, and it was a big decision for me to to jump in this race and to you know to put my full effort into it. Um, I didn't do that lightly, and you know, and for him to suggest that I'm, uh, uh, you know, that I that he can just use me to split the vote or whatever, it just um, it didn't. 
it didn't sit well with me. It hasn't sit well. It hasn't uh, been a positive experience. I think For most people who have commented to me about what they um, have felt about all of this, um, they have offered a lot of support to me, and you know, and so it, it is what it is. But um, I do think. At this particular point in history where character matters so much that this isn't something to be quiet about because really women should have the opportunity to uh, run for office, to have an equal chance to be elected, and, um, you know, and they should be, they should be chosen based on their qualifications. And um, for him to his behavior through this period of time has not been um, has not been very honest or uh, or forthcoming. Uh, you you wrote that um, on March the third last month that you were moved by Senator Kagan's own experience with sexual harassment, and you you wrote your own version of the the Me Too, of a Me Too story, and uh, it's it's found on your website if. If, if people wish to read that, which is www.votehelga.com. And some people have criticized you, Helga, for what they think is a misrepresentation of the Me Too movement. And rather, they say that you have uh, used the Me Too movement, which is a serious movement in national politics, and it's really everywhere. I mean, it's, it's bringing light to some pretty horrific situations that have occurred to many of our, our, our women. I mean, every, I think most women I know have some sort of me too story. I, I really believe that. I, and then, and I'll talk off the right. record. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even, you know, I, even the women in my own house, I mean, maybe minus my, our daughter, but who's 11, but I'm just saying, I, I know most women that I know, including from my grandmother who, grandmothers who grew up during um, the real heart of the women's rights movements who went out and worked and had to experience the, the, the 1960s madman era treatment of women to my mother, who's a trailblazer that grew up and, you know, is now one of the smartest people working at Fort Detrick um, up in Frederick, Maryland for the federal government. Most women have some type of story where they feel are, they have been um, targeted by men or they have been demeaned in some way. And I, I see this story is, is, is relatable. However, some people are saying that this is politics, Helga, and people are asked to jump in and out of races often to, to benefit other candidates. But you don't see it that way. You, you see it as a, a male asking you to jump out of the race to help him during this pivotal time in our history. Is that correct? What, what I um, think is, is correct here is that he not only asked me, but he asked two female candidates. And then he lied on the record. And there's nothing, I don't think, um, there's nothing wrong with me self-advocating to say, I'm running in an election here. And he essentially called me a liar on the record, on the record. This is my public reputation. So um, I don't think it, there's anything uh, wrong with 
self-advocating and um, those who would criticize, I would, you know, put it back on them. I mean, you know, why wouldn't it be okay for me to self-advocate and look for support? Do, do you want Delegate Waldstricker to acknowledge what what you say he said during a private discussion and apologize? What What would you ultimately want him to do in this case? Well, I think he should rescind what is false on the record and apologize, but I don't know that that's going to happen. Um, you know, I think it, it, it's been a month already, uh, and so – you know, now the next step is really for the voters to decide, does character matter that much? And if it does, then, um, you know, then there's one really qualified candidate for Senate who has integrity and, uh, you know, and uh, has been honest and um, is very knowledgeable. I presume you're speaking And that would be Dana uh, Beyer. Okay, Dana Beyer, right, who was on the show a few weeks ago. And I know that in the last few days that uh, 7th State, um, another local blog, wrote a story that you had apparently a letter that was leaked to the press. It was not leaked to me. I, um, I have not received this at all. Um, but apparently it was re- – I believe it was leaked as well to Bethesda Beats and Medcalf, and you had sent a letter out to your fellow uh, candidates and asked them to sign on to a letter. Have you received any signatures on that? You know, I, that's not something I'm going to send out, and uh, I'll let the other candidates uh, – uh, respond to whether they were supportive or not. My, you know, sometimes you try things in politics. Uh, you um, you try to see if something is going to gain traction. Um, I had a conversation with uh, many of the female candidates in the district. We were um, having breakfast on an unrelated matter, and uh, and it seemed that there was a lot of support around this. That yeah, we could all stand together and. Uh, say that character matters, um, and it should matter in this election. And um, and so from that place, I wrote a, state, a draft statement, and I also marked it uh, not for circulation, um, which, you know, unfortunately uh, was leaked uh, to the press. And, you know, it, but that's – it didn't work out the way I had hoped. I had hoped it would be a unifying moment for us to say in District 18 – we really care about character, and those of us who are running absolutely believe that character counts and integrity matters. And uh, unfortunately, you know, it didn't pan out that way, but sometimes you try things and it works, and other times not so much. I know that based on what I'm reading and this conversation, you had asked that this statement or a draft statement – is would not be circulated, which alt, which logically one would infer that it would not be leaked to someone like myself, who's a member of the press, or in, another reporter, or Seven State Blog. And uh, I mean, do you have any ideas who you think leaked it? Um, you know, I do know who leaked it, but that's I don't think it's important anymore. It's not a statement that's. Uh, you know, I mean, if you read the Seventh State blog, I think it's pretty clear. <laughs> but um, you know, it's 
we're all in this race. We're all working hard to uh, to try to win votes and for people to understand who we are as people. Um, I don't want to get into a fight. Um, I've unfortunately, you know, had this friction with Jeff Waltstriker, um, but that was largely because of something he did, and uh, and my feeling that it was not. Uh, uh, useful to be quiet about it because people really should know the character of the candidates. Right. So um, Let's that's kind of where Let's I move. stand on it. Okay. Well, and I appreciate you explaining that. And I know it's not the, I know that it's not what you wanted to focus on, but I nonetheless wanted to get that out of the way, but I'm interested in some of the issues that you're running on and on your website. Again, it's votehalga.com. You are focusing on, civility and safety, education, quality of life, opioids and substance abuse. And the final point is leadership beyond legislation. Looking at the state state politics of today, and I should mention tomorrow is, is sine die. Um, t- tomorrow is the, the wrap-up of session. And looking at state politics today, what is it that you want to accomplish if you, when you get into Annapolis, what are those? You know, what is that most important issue that you are seeking? What do you want to do as a state delegate? So that's a, fa- a fantastic question. Thank you for asking me. And um, I would say it would be to bring the trauma-informed lens to all policy, um, and to really work with other policymakers who sit on different committees to help them understand why trauma-informed care matters. We're one of um, the last states, really, in the country to embrace trauma-informed care as a philosophical um, perspective to social change. And um, I've been actually, and this is one of the things that makes me a little different than uh, some of the other candidates, is that I work across party lines. Um, I've been working with First Lady Walker of Wisconsin. Uh, she and I have had a, you know, we're both crystal clear. I, my policy positions are very, very, very different than her husband's. But where we found common ground is around trauma-informed care. And she has been working in the state of Wisconsin uh, to transform her entire state. Uh, she just had a Norwegian delegation over to kind of learn about how the state of Wisconsin is working this, not just through criminal justice and human services and education, but even in the Department of Transportation, um, you know, really helping people to understand the nature and impact of trauma, how this affects the way people interact, learn, um, respond to others in the community. And it's, it's promoting a cultural shift that's having a net positive effect. Um, and she and I have been working on at the federal level. Um, so I'm one of two of her subject matter experts who have been uh, working at the federal level on some policy issues, uh, we managed to, and this is, you know, was kind of 20 years in the making for me, um, getting to the point of seeing a trauma-informed care resolution passed with bipartisan support unanimously. Um, and for that to happen in 2018 is pretty remarkable. And that passed uh, just a few weeks ago. And there's a Senate resolution that will go to the floor pretty soon. 
Um, but it's elevating, you know, part of the, the reason why I'm doing this uh, advocacy work, because it's not part of my day job. Um, I do it because with this administration, it's especially important that we do whatever we can to preserve the good work. And anything that doesn't have some of the attention of Republicans or the expressed um, uh, need for this work to continue is at risk of being cut. And as a trauma survivor myself, I realize not only how this improves program outcomes and policy outcomes, um, but how it really, it really transforms the way communities interact and work together. And so um, that's been so, sort of a really meaningful piece of work, and it's, it's what I hope to bring to Annapolis. Um, I've been working on the Governor's Family Violence Council. I've tried to really work to educate uh, the council also on trauma-informed care and how this works in uh, violence and sexual abuse and um, how, uh, how this can transform courts. Um, even, you know, some of the jail diversion programs, for instance, uh, especially for nonviolent offenses, um, you know, people don't fare off better if they're incarcerated, but if they're given a, a, an opportunity for a diversion program, and then they don't experience incarceration, um, but they have the, also the support to heal from a, a mental health concern or a substance use disorder, that's a positive transformation. And so it's those kinds of things that I, you know, that I'm most passionate about that I really hope to work on here in Maryland. There's certainly an element there that distinguishes you from your opponents in this race. And that has been, <laughs> that has been discussed ad nauseum in this primary that the candidates all seemingly agree with one another. And that's, and that's not, that's not altogether true. And, and you've had two forms and the first form uh, where, where you were each on stage, all the candidates were present um, and, <laughs> Everybody seemed to agree on the issues. District 18 is known to be a, a progressive bastion in Maryland politics, and there's no shortage of progressive candidates. And it, it this, you know, we're, we're we're trying to talk about the differences in each of the candidates. And you know, in fairness, I think that this is certainly one that um, distinguishes you from 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 the group. Now, I wanted to mention to you, Halga, that. It's, it's rare during interviews that people call in, and there's, it looks like somebody's on hold, so they may want to ask you a question. Before I patch them in, is it okay if, I, if, if they do have a question, you know, as a moderator, I will certainly moderate this, but somebody might have a question to ask you, and I don't know who this number is that's calling. Sure. Okay, okay. So I'm going to patch whomever is calling in from the, the 240 number, and I'm, I think that they're just patched in. I don't know. Okay. Well, if not, they can call back. It's rare, Helga, that we get people to call in that ask candidates questions. We just kind of roll with the interview. But no, but okay. I, you know, I'm happy to answer questions. I mean, that to me, if people are curious about my positions, that's a really good thing, and I'm happy to answer questions. I mean, people can go through my Facebook page or through votehelga.com uh, and email me. I'm happy to answer any questions they might have about my positions, or if they want to even educate me on an issue that's important to them. 
um, you know, I, I'm grateful for that conversation. No, it's absolutely. And I'm sure you're doing much of that uh, through knocking doors. And I, I, I presume you're going to do some some mailer campaigns and, and whatnot. But for some reason, my technology not so many not... mailer campaigns, though. I have a low carb campaign. What is so, that? What, what does uh... low carb? What does that mean? <laughs> so, you know, one of the most impressionable experiences of this uh, candidacy for me was doing the environmental questionnaire. I spent more than 20 hours researching the questions because I really wanted to dig in and understand what was happening, what was at risk and what potential solutions there were. And so, you know, I used a number of different sources um, to formulate what I felt would be very informed decisions um, and responses. But part of that also made me think and reflect on how I'm doing this campaign. And to me, um, it's, you know, we need to walk the walk. If we're saying we care about the environment, why are we leaving such a big carbon footprint from our campaigns? So I decided early on that I was going to have a low carb campaign. Even my business card is a two inch by two inch business card. It's half the carbon footprint of a regular business card. And I'm doing a lot of electronic outreach just, you know, I think we need to right-size how we're campaigning. Um, we know the effects of climate change and the risk. And we know that we don't need more waste. But even for me to find biodegradable and recyclable yard signs, I had to go all the way to Colorado. Hmm. And I wow. know that I'm the only candidate in District 18 that's made the effort to look for it. <laughs> so, um, you know, I... To me, if I'm saying I will stand up and fight for our environment and protect our environment, um, then I need to walk the walk. And for me, that's running, you know, running a low-carb campaign. I, I want to talk about an issue that is on the minds of millions of Americans, and that's gun violence. And so that's been a topic since the Parkland, uh, the shooting down in Florida, um, all of us have been on edge. I mean, and, and in fairness, we've been on edge as Americans for years. Every time that a mass shooting occurs, um, the thoughts and the, you know, the proverbial thoughts and prayers are offered, but nothing seems to happen. And then we have the discussion between the left and the right, and common ground is often avoided in these discussions. But in Maryland, I know that they are uh, they're taking action, and you were given the mom's demand. Uh, you got the mom's demand that distinction. And are you are you part of the the mom's demand um, or the the Marylanders prevent to prevent gun violence group? Or do you actively participate in these groups? I do, and I've been very active on uh, gun violence and, and advocacy around uh, gun violence for a very long time. Um, in fact, one of my endorsements also comes from former Congressman Ron Barber, uh, who was Gabrielle Gifford's chief of staff, who was also shot when she mm -hmm. was shot, and he then took her seat uh, in the I House. Remember that. 
and um, and so he's uh, you know he, he knows um, how I come at this work. He's also worked with me a bit on trauma informed care um, because he understands uh, PTSD and um, how trauma affects people and how important it is that we uh, educate communities and and our policymakers on those issues. But um, you know, I, I've also, for the Department of Health and Human Services, um, done a number of white papers and, and some research on violence prevention and the impact of violence. And um, there are very clearly some patterns uh, that, you know, that I think we don't pay enough attention to. And aside from the very difficult discussions around gun regulation and which guns are acceptable or, you know, should we remove bump, bump stop stocks, which absolutely we should, you know. Right. Um, but aside from that conversation, we need to also understand what it is that causes, especially young people, you know, young teenagers, um, and the vast majority of school shooters are between the ages of um, 16 and, and I think 24, uh, mostly Caucasian males. Um, most of them, and I just want to say, you know, this is just looking at about 50 years of, of history um, and data that I uh, that I dug into for a paper for HHS, but you know. A lot of these kids, they had access to a weapon at home. They were isolated or um, uh, bullied at school. And um, I think the, there, there's a lot of learning that could happen. If we were to put more of a focus in schools, especially in grade school and middle school, on social-emotional learning, if we taught kids to learn some of the warning signs, how to self-regulate, if we promoted empathy and kindness, um, if we taught kids about all religions so that no one child would be singled out as different, um, you know, I think we would start to see those warning signs much earlier. We would start to see when someone's starting to disconnect or they're not performing, uh, you know, academically as uh, strong. Um, and maybe we would be able to prevent some of these things. But, you know, at the end of the day, the reality is these kids still had access to guns. And somehow the parents didn't recognize or didn't secure the guns in a way where the child wouldn't have access. So there's a, uh, you know, I think it's a whole community effort that has to happen for us to start to understand. I see on social media there's a lot of, you know, chatter that guns aren't the only thing things that kill people in London, as many or more people have died uh, compared to New York City, but by um, knife violence, by stabbings. And, you know, it, it's, if we go back to what is happening with these kids and recognizing those warning signs as early as possible, I think then we start to get to the root of the problem. Um, guns absolutely are, are a huge part of the problem. 
but it, it, it's a multi-pronged approach. You can't just look at gun regulation. And this is also, you know, part of my platform, and, and I use that coin phrase, leadership beyond legislation. Not every social problem that we have is going to be fixed with policy. Sometimes we can't get a unanimous vote to move something positive forward. So what else can we be doing? And to me, that's leadership beyond legislation. What else can we be doing to facilitate positive social change? How can we mobilize the grassroots, community-based organizations, parents, teachers, whomever uh, we need as a partner, how can we build that strength so that our kids are safer? Right. And big, big topic on the minds of Americans in, in every state. Um, I want to move on to are, are you familiar with the Maryland Safe Act? I'm, I am not. OK, so the, the Maryland Safe Act is um, a, an issue that's being discussed in this General Assembly. Um, and it's focused on the um, uh, the the immigration and providing that the the state government is is uh, or local government is immune from criminal and civil liability for refusing to provide to the federal government another state that will be used for certain purposes basically absolutely i i know what you're talking about sorry that's okay that's okay um that's a that's another issue um at the forefront and so as as well, I we've we've heard the term sanctuary communities or sanctuary cities, um, and so what are your thoughts on local immigration policy and how the state um, um, would would pass legislation to protect our immigrant communities? So I think uh, I, I absolutely support sanctuary cities. I think that we need this is the number one issue on my policy agenda is safety and civility. And, um, you know, really nothing can happen if someone doesn't feel safe. Um, if they feel that their family is at risk, that they are at risk, uh, everything else all of the quality of life and um, ability to learn or work, uh, everything is affected. So we have to make sure that people are safe. Um, so, I, I mean, I would absolutely support sanctuary. Okay. Um, and another issue that was discussed at y- your forum was the topic of of gerrymandering in congressional districts. And so in 2020, it will be up to the governor to to set the congressional lines. And I'm sure you're aware of the the boundaries of Maryland's third congressional district. And if I looked at a map now of the third congressional district, I honestly couldn't tell you where it starts, where it begins, and which cities or counties. Now, Maryland's sixth congressional district, where I live in, in North Potomac, it used to be where I live. I was part of the eighth congressional district. Now I've I've never been part of the eighth congressional district. I've grown up in the sixth, pretty much in my entire life, and have voted there. But this seems like a a good governance bipartisan issue that state legislators can all agree that we have a gerrymandering problem, and there's a simple mm-hmm. way to fix it. And regardless of of whose political party it benefits that gerrymandering is wrong and it should not happen in state government. And so, you know, it's happening up in Pennsylvania where 
You know, I think the Republicans are likely to lose a district. It's been a major problem for for Maryland. And recently, former Governor Martin O'Malley, a Democrat, said that uh, now he's opposed to the same plan that he implemented a few years ago that basically uh, gerrymandered a, a Republican seat away from Western Maryland. Um, and that, of course, is up for debate. But just curious, what is your what is your stance on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's clear that both parties have kind of gerrymandered at some point uh, and and used it to draw the lines to give them favor. Um, I think, you know, there there just needs to be fair representation for the people and it has to be fair and balanced. So um, how those lines are drawn needs to be representative of the people and not the party. Right. Looking at the the governor's race with Governor Hogan, um, what are your thoughts on the governor? Where where do you think that he has done well? Where are some things that you think that he needs to improve on? Well, I can tell you just from door knocking that people are um, still talking about the uh, the longer uh, summer break and um, parents really feeling the pinch uh, with having to provide additional daycare and that kind of thing. Um, you know, uh, I, I realize that he has um, been focused a lot on the economy of the state. Um, I don't see the kind of imp- improvements that I think could really make a difference. I can tell you from serving on his um, uh, family violence council, um, you know, one of the things that really struck me and, and actually was a major influ- influencer in my running in this race was that um, everything happened very insulary. There was, uh, you know, a lot of talk about uh, teen dating violence curriculum and how important this was for kids. And I would raise the fact that, you know, I've worked with the Department of Justice. I know there are a number of states that are implementing uh, evidence-based practices for uh, teen dating violence, and there are actually additional funds to support that. And, you know, I I think um, there has been a lot of reinventing the wheel that isn't very efficient. Um, So... I think that we can we can do better. Um, we can definitely learn from our uh, neighboring states and and other states across the country. Um, that's something I see all the time in the work that I do as a government contractor. Um, you know, there are plenty of states that have taken the leap on some issues um, and have really showed showed and demonstrated positive outcomes, uh, even far beyond what they predicted or hoped. Um, and so I think we could be doing a lot more of that here in Maryland. The Montgomery County Green Democrats recently listed their candidates for whom they're going to endorse. And <laughs> call it what you will, but I wrote a piece last last week that highlighted the fact that not many women candidates were were chosen or endorsed by the group. And I, I will go on to publish um, an explanation from the one of the members and uh, how the endorsements were made. And I, I'll, I'll post that on minordetail.com uh, this week. But I'm, I'm curious to, to learn more about um, your thoughts on the environment um, and what you as a state legislator would focus on in terms of policy. 
You know, I think that I think women still have a uh, a tough battle here. Um, the way to change this and and the attitudes of giving giving men the upper hand. Um, or giving them the endorsement, uh, or believing that they can do it well because they've been doing it for a number of years, um, better than any of the potential women. Um, you know that the way to change that is by by women winning. I mean, we need to get in there and fight hard to win. And I I really hope that we see a, a tidal wave of women coming into office this uh, this fall. That we win win the elections and uh, starting next year, um, that things will look really different. Um, you know, I I think that there is a balance that needs to um, happen and. The voters have the power to do that, and I really hope um, I, I, th- I know that there's a lot of skepticism that um, you know the elections in at the end of June and maybe people won't come out. I think people are really motivated to come out and vote, and I hope that they do. And I hope that they'll consider the female candidates uh, because there are many good ones. Um, in many races and a lot of good options, but I, you know, there. Um, this is actually something that Leslie Milano said. Uh, you know, the parity issue is important, and I think she has a good point there. Um, if we're representing our district, then there needs to be some balance. Right. No, I, 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 I agree that this might be the year where female candidates um, will. Uh, take Washington or state capitals by storm. And uh, so that is, that, that's promising. And I, I see many women have, um, have run for office uh, in, in 2018 and are uh, running for office. And that's so important. That's, that's the, that's the vibrancy of our, uh, of our democracy. And uh, I, I want to see as many women voices as possible uh, speaking loud and, and bringing up and highlighting the issues in state capitals, on city councils, um, as mayors, as elected officials and leaders. And that's, that's so important for the future of our democracy. Um, well, and you're part ask- of the solution. You know, I think it, it takes uh, – it, it also – it's not just the women coming forward, but it's having – strong, smart men that stand up for women, too. And um, so, you know, I really appreciate that you uh, include women's voices in these important discussions and uh, and support uh, women running for office, too. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, I'm thinking in terms of um, of policy moving forward in the next sessions. Um, and one of the issues that has been discussed at the local level here in Montgomery County is the Department of Liquor Control. And everybody has a definitive opinion on what should happen to the Department of Liquor Control. But we also understand that this can't we can't get Montgomery County out of the Department of Liquor Control without the state. So what are your thoughts on that issue? Yeah, that's uh it's sort of an interesting question and around issues of um I think there are a lot of ways to achieve funding um when you lose one source of uh taxable uh, uh income, right? So uh, 
when it comes to issues of liquor and um, even the marijuana topic, um, my position is really that, you know, I believe that a healthy life is, um, and I'm not saying that people uh, who uh, consume alcohol or smoke marijuana or consume marijuana in other ways, that they're not healthy, but, um, but I think that I like to focus on healthy issues and um, and what what really promotes health and wellness. And I see, um, you know, I work very closely with the Department of Health and Human Services around opioids. And um, the reason why, part of the reason why I feel very passionately about this is because um, I see the residual ripple effects. I mean, we now are seeing an uptick in kids entering the foster care system directly related to opioids. And, um, you know, there's even very little uh, focus on obtaining accurate data on um, whether it's opioids specifically or other forms of substance use. Um, so, you know, I think there's there's just so much that, um, that happens as a result of uh, substance use disorders. Um, in terms of the... Liquor control, um, you know, I, I, I see the impact it has on restaurants. I see um, higher prices here than in other uh, neighboring jurisdictions. So I, I think that um, there are other ways that we could achieve, you know, that kind of revenue. Um, and, you know, it's really not in anyone's best interest to have a monopoly. Um, you, you mentioned marijuana and of course focusing on healthy issues um you know i i agree we, i'm always trying to figure out how to in, incorporate a, a healthier lifestyle into my own personal habits and routines and uh you know and a lot of that is affected by what we eat and how we choose to to exercise and not only our bodies but our minds um but as an aside uh, but my question is, do you do you support um, the legalization of marijuana in the state of Maryland? I think that people should be given the right to make the decision of what they're consuming. And I, you know, by all accounts, I mean, um, we know that marijuana has medicinal properties. Um, I, I absolutely um, have seen that uh, and uh, there's evidence of it, and um, you know, it, I think that people should have the choice. So yes, I I would support legalization. Okay, and and another issue that is uh, discussed at the state level is the the, the legislation with death with dignity. Um, that's a, that's a big one for for many families, and I know that I believe it was uh, Oregon has um, passed a death with dignity bill. Um, Maryland hasn't gotten there yet, and for for, for many reasons. But um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I, I you know I would support a death with dignity bill. Um, I think we have to have some safe safeguards in there. Um, but it's a topic that I track. Um, I actually I, I facilitate a couple of groups on social media called Trauma Informed, uh, one on Facebook and one on LinkedIn. And uh, I just posted an article the other day of um, 
The scientist who came up with this, um, this chamber that can be put in any place, so it could be right on the beach or whatever, and slowly uh, it removes oxygen from the chamber. And, and this is his proposal for death with dignity because that lack of oxygen actually creates a euphoric state. So if you know you're dying of a terminal illness, um, his philosophy is, you know, what better way to go than to have this chamber in the most soothing, beautiful place um, that you, you know, that you want to be in and to, you know, to slowly lose consciousness from, uh, from a lack of oxygen, but in a, a state of euphoria. And um, to me, that's, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how people are now thinking about uh, this. Death is as much a part of life as birth. And, um, you know, and I think that it's, it's a really beautiful thing to think about it in a, a way where it's not so um, uh, painful. And, um, you know, of course there's loss. But if we can make that um, even a beautiful experience for people, I think there's something really profound about that. I agree. Yeah, I, I agree on that, especially um, when you're out knocking doors and you're communicating with voters and you're sitting down in living rooms and having conversations and one-on-one meet and greets uh, throughout your district, what's on people's minds? What do they talk to you about? Uh, Health care is a big one. Education is a big one, um, a topic that often comes up, and I, I don't know uh, why this comes up, but um, bullying uh, and, uh, and ch- child safety issues. Um, I say I don't know why bullying comes up because I um, lead a, a federal uh, bullying prevention uh, effort, um, so it always kind of strikes me to hear, you know, that, that this is um, – so prominent uh, in our community, but it's, you know, we, we've seen that on the uptick really through the last election cycle and um, since inauguration, that bullying and um, intolerance, school violence, um, all of those things have been on the rise. Um, Traffic is a big one. I think, um, you know, people are looking for solid solutions to our traffic situation, uh, affordable housing, especially for seniors. That has come up quite a bit. Well, it's traffic and definitely affordable housing. These pocketbook basic kitchen table issues, the economic issues, how, how are people going to pay the mortgage? They're going to send uh, their children to college and how they're going to afford their expenses and we know that it's living in Montgomery County is not easy for many people who want access to some of our very best schools and I know you mentioned bullying as an issue and that comes in many forms online bullying it comes in you know it doesn't happen just in schools it you know it's it's, it's happening everywhere is there some you know I I work with an organization um or rather I don't want to say work but I I've have invested time in exploring the organization um, and donating my time to um, its principles. It's called Sandy Hook Promise, and it was organized by the the parents who lost their children in the the, the Sandy Hook tragedy um, 
back in 2012. We all remember that. Just absolutely, just just tremendous horrible loss. Um, and it's a group of parents who decide to look for signs in students um, before an incident transpires, and mm-hmm. they focus on bullying. And there's there's many um, important tangible outcomes that we can, um, I think, teach inside of our public schools and really elsewhere. I mean, just basic principles uh, to prevent bullying. And I know that legislation has been addressed elsewhere in other states, but I'm interested to see how um, what we're going to do at the local level um, in our school system here in Montgomery County to, to tackle bullying head on. And I, I know that it's it's a topic on parents' minds everywhere you go. Everywhere you Absolutely. go, that is, comes up. Yeah, I, it's because it is an adverse childhood experience. And if kids experience sort of this prolonged, repeated um, abuse um, or public shaming, and, you know, that, that becomes toxic stress to them. And it can actually lead to uh, some of the si- signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Um, you know, so we, we know that bullying is a risk factor even for suicide. And it's a public health issue, and it needs to be addressed that way. Um, all of the, the way that I have been working with our team on um, bullying prevention, we take all the latest research. Um, we have two of the leading experts in the country who are um, researching bullying prevention, one on cyberbullying, one on um, regular bullying sort of in the school in person. And, um, and we look at where the common threads are. So what are the drivers to change? What can we implement in schools that would actually affect positive change so that kids experience bullying less? We know that zero tolerance doesn't work. And in no. fact, if we, if we take a kid out of the classroom for bullying, we give them a referral and we send them to the principal's office, that doesn't solve anything, and it sends that child on a downward trajectory, you know, where they, they are um, missing the classroom assignments, so they're not getting the learning that they need, and they're isolated socially. Um, so we have to be smarter about how we approach this. And actually, just this last year, we created the first bullying prevention assessment tool, um, which was a really um, conceptually kind of awkward thing to work with because how do you really measure prevention? Um, and the way that we did it was by taking all of the research and looking at what builds up the protective factors for kids and what makes kids stay um, stay connected with one another, what strengthens those connections, um, what builds the relationships with the teachers. And at the core of all of it, um, you know, is really that social-emotional learning and empathy building and promoting kindness and creating, you know, putting an emphasis on positive school culture where the parents are also involved, where the teachers are connected with the parents, now, all of that takes time, but if you start to see over time that um, you're not only seeing your bullying incidents go down, you're seeing your violence incidents going down, you're seeing higher grade point averages, lower expulsions, lower suspensions, and greater parental involvement, 
those are all fantastic things. And there's no school that wouldn't want more of that. I agree. Yeah, that's that's an important point. Just wrapping up this interview, and I appreciate your time, especially I know you're busy, and this it means a lot to me that you, you came on the show tonight. And uh, hope we have another opportunity to do so again in the future. But uh, what uh, what do you want people to know about your candidacy and where can they find you? Sure. So I, you know, uh, when I think back on everything that I've lived through, I think the most important um, part of, of growth and resilience comes when you can turn the dark cloud of what happened to you and do something positive with it. And in the past, I've uh, started a nonprofit, um, helped thousands of uh, survivors of violence and trauma. And now I come to this candidacy really wanting to affect positive change here in District 18. And I hope that voters will have the confidence uh, in me as a candidate to vote for me in June. Um, I really want this opportunity to demonstrate how leadership beyond legislation can make a difference in ways that we haven't seen before. And uh, for those who are interested in connecting with me, they can find me on Facebook, but also um, my website, uh, votehelga.com. I also have a vote area on that website if you're not sure if you're in District 18 or which precinct to vote in. Um, all that information is on my website, so votehelga.com would be the place to go, and please feel free to reach out if there are any questions or any topics that you'd like to talk about. Helga, I appreciate so much uh, your the opportunity to have this discussion with you. It's a big race, and it's it, it's not easy being a candidate and putting your name on a ballot and in turn asking people to to come out and support you and standing in front of public forums. And um, it can be a very uh, daunting pro- uh, process, but uh, I, I applaud anybody who steps up and runs for office because it's a, it's an experience that uh, I think you'll never forget. And so um, I always tell candidates, I appreciate when they run um, and everybody has something different to offer. And one thing that I have learned living in Montgomery County is that our voting populace Um, They are informed individuals. They go out and research the issues. They know the candidates' positions, and they're quick to ask questions. Um, And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to live in um, a community where we value voting. We value information, and oftentimes we can't get enough of it. And that's why I tried to provide this outlet, this forum for for candidates just to have a discussion, to to come on the show and to, to to speak freely um, without worrying about, you know, the, the, the political chat stuff that I know some of the other shows like to talk about. But this is a safe space for candidates to come on and, and just have a discussion about important issues that are important to you and to your district. So once again, Helga, I, I appreciate you coming on tonight, and I wish you uh, all the best in uh, your, your, your election endeavors here. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you again for this. It uh, means a lot. You bet. All right. Well, you have a great week, Helga. You too. Bye-bye. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. All right. That was District 18 Democratic candidate Helga Lu. She's running uh, for the House of Delegates uh, in, in Legislative District 18. So with that, 
we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. We'll be back next week at 9 o'clock. Uh, I will not be broadcasting on April 22nd. Why, you may ask? Because on April 22nd, I will be a married man, and I will be enjoying the night after my wedding with my soon-to-be lovely wife. So um, be back next week, and then the the following week, I, the, we'll, we'll probably go into late April, early May, and then I know candidates will be there <laughs> saying, Ryan, you haven't got me on the show yet. If I haven't gotten to you, please email me at ryan at a minor com. I promise I'll get you on the show. I promise um, before the June primary. So with that, thank you everybody for listening tonight and I'll see you uh, next week.